0: But as we turn our hearts to God's Word this morning, I just want to read the first three verses for us, and uh, and then we will um, venture into kind of pursuing what we've gone through in a little bit of review, and then hopefully cover some items on the apostleship of Paul. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified In Christ, Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to look at this morning Paul's assertion of apostolic authority. Paul's assertion of apostolic authority, and we've done some review here. We've we've looked at basically why Paul wrote this book, and we mentioned basically three things. We said first of all, he wrote the book to Corinth, who is this this town that's right in the the center uh, of the. Uh, Of the area over there, and so it was a thoroughfare for shipping and and trading and everything, so it was an ideal place to plant a church. But Corinth itself was a city of degradation, a church in division, and a crisis of doctrine. All three of those things were present in Corinth, and obviously, Paul is the author, and we went through all that he, uh, all his background earlier. I read an illustration this past week, a story, actually. And in the 1960s, there was a famous college basketball player at UCLA named Lou Alcindor. Lou was searching for the meaning of life. He investigated several world religions, including Christianity. And he was impressed with the person of Christ, but his reason for rejecting Christianity was this, and this is what he gave. I have never seen a real... Christian. If I did see one, I might become one. Lou converted to the Muslim religion, taking the name Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Perhaps Jabbar had read Gandhi or something else. Gandhi said, This there was a time when I wavered between Hinduism and Christianity. I think I would have become a Christian if I would. If it would not have been for Christians. (laughs) So, when you read quotes like that, obviously they have a misunderstanding of what a true Christian is anyway. But a Christian is a sinner who is one saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. And along with that come new desires for Christ's likeness. But we're not perfect, we're in that process of sanctification. But we totally understand that we can have one day that perfection, that, that glorious uh, completion when we are in eternity with him. But he is the one way to heaven. And so when you come to the, the book of, of Corinthians, it's all about seeing transformation in people's lives. Christianity is about transformation. We looked at that in the lives of, lives of Paul before. Uh, Because Christians, people can't transform themselves. Christ has to transform them. God has to do that work. And that's why we believe in a God-centered salvation, not a man-centered salvation. We were talking about that in the Men of the Word study. What is a Christian last Thursday night? Wonderful. We had a small group, but we had a great discussion. And it was good. It was a real blessing to discuss these things. Um, So there can only be one way that we can receive this transformation And it has to happen both on the inside and the outside, and that's through the God, our Creator, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And so we looked at at various things in the life of Paul, uh, his background and things like that, and you can look at that in the messages that were before. But last time we met, we were together, and we said we have five reasons why Paul asserted his apostleship. In other words, why did Paul find it necessary to say, Paul, called by the will of God, to be an apostle? It sounds almost like he's bragging. Well, what's his reasoning here? And we we listed these five things, and we went into them in the previous message, but I'm just going to list them here this morning. He was not part of the original 12. Remember, he came after the scene. He was persecuting Christians. Okay, He wasn't part of the original 12 apostles. And then secondly, he was continually being challenged and harassed because of that. People thought that, well, who does who this guy I think he is? He's coming and saying he's an apostle. He's not part of the original 12. What's his motivation? Is he just trying to make a name for himself? Um, and thirdly, we talked about his relationship to Christ, how important it was uh, for him to assert his apostleship. Fourthly, his special relationship to the church in Corinth. He founded it and really um, wanted to minister to them. And then his special relationship to God as his emissary or his apostle. And so he really wanted to represent God in the right way. And so he had to assert his authority. He wouldn't put up with people questioning it. And so while among them he had not preached his own message um, to the Corinthians, but God's message. And that's what he was uh, always reminding us. Hey, this is not a message that I just kind of cooked up one morning while I was home eating breakfast and thought I would deliver it to you. This is God's message. And that's one thing that we need to make sure that when we teach, that when we preach, we're not preaching our message. There's so many churches today, that's all you hear. You know, they come up with a little slick outline a little slick topical sermon, and, and hopefully they can find scriptures to support their topic. Uh, I'm not saying that's always wrong. We do that occasionally on holidays and things like that. We'll have what we would call a topical series, okay? But it comes out of the scriptures. We expound the scriptures. And that's what Paul wanted them to know, that this is not his message. This was God's message to them. And so in light of the 12, in light of all the false teachers, in light of his relationship to Christ and the Corinthian church, Paul was fully an apostle. what is an apostle? I mean, we talk about this. Apostle basically means sent one. It means one simply sent on a, m- a mission. It'd be like um, the people that we send overseas to represent us in foreign countries, those dignitaries, Okay. Technically and primarily in the New Testament, the word apostle is used only of the twelve, including Matthias, who replaced, remember, Judas, and of Paul. That's all it's used of. Now, in a, in a basic meaning, the idea that we're all sent on a mission, well, yeah, we are apostles that way, but we don't hold the office of apostle. And that's what we're going to look at Unique. Uh, that's unique to these 12 plus Paul, that they were apostles. And so when we stop and think of the qualifications for the being an apostle, it's clearly the Word of God says that, first of all, they had to be chosen directly by Christ personally to be his apostles. So when you hear people today say, oh, I'm Apostle Paul or I'm Apostle Joe, no, there's no title of apostle anymore. There's no office of apostle, and we're going to look into that. I'm going to answer the question. You're probably thinking, well, why not? Well, we're going to talk about that, but to be an apostle in the first place in the New Testament church, the number one thing is you had to be chosen directly by Christ. That's what made Paul so unique. When people were scratching their heads going, wait, how can he be apostle? He wasn't even here. When Christ was here, you know, he wasn't chosen by Christ personally with the other 12. But what happened on the road, remember, when he was going to Damascus and the bright light, and Christ appeared to him, what, personally. That's why that was so important. If that wouldn't have happened, he couldn't have been an apostle. So God, in his bigger purpose and his bigger plan, said, you know what, I'm making a special trip. Jesus came out of heaven right back to earth just to confront Saul, who was persecuting the church and was willing to choose him as an apostle. So the first thing was they had to be chosen directly by Christ. Secondly, they had to witness the resurrected Christ. So it wasn't good enough that they could uh, be chosen by Christ, but they had to literally be seen seeing the resurrected Christ. And so all the apostles were able to do that because Christ rose from the dead. And he... Had time with them. He shared with them. Well, Paul wasn't there. Well, guess what? He saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. So that takes care of that. So those are the, the 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 qualifications of an apostle. That's why we don't have apostles today. Jesus isn't the isn't in the business of making trips from heaven and appearing to everybody. He doesn't do that. And when people say he does, you wonder. All you have to do is ask what their reaction was. And usually it's one of dialogue. Well, you know, I asked them certain questions and, you know, kind of continued doing what I was doing. And that's not what would happen if you were encountered with the risen Christ. You would be flat on your face, you couldn't even speak. You would be in the presence of God. I mean, think about that. The idea that you would just continue driving down the freeway. Yeah, Jesus popped in my my passenger side. Wow, it was really cool. I had a great conversation. You hear all kind of wacky things. Well, that's why we don't believe that the office of apostle is around today because you can't be an apostle. I've never physically seen the risen Christ. He's never appeared to me. And so that was one of the qualifications. Well, Paul himself had to meet those qualifications as well. So apostles aren't in the church today. Um, some people kind of liken the office of apostleship is the delegates who went to the Constitutional Convention in the founding of our country back way back when. When the, when the convention was over, guess what? their position ceased. There was no need for them anymore, you know, because, because they had done what the job that they needed to do. And so when the New Testament was completed, the office of apostle and the office of prophet, by the way, doesn't mean you don't have the gift of prophecy, that's different, but the office of prophet ceased. It went away. So, the term apostle is used more general, in the more general sense of other men in the early church. It's used uh, as such people as Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and a few other leaders. But that is just in the general sense, like they were just sent. It's not talking about uh, the authentic 12 apostles, including Paul 13. There's also in the Bible false prophets or false apostles. Spoken of, even in 2 Corinthians chapter eleven, where where some have uh, counterfeited that that office of apostle, they saw what the original apostles did and they said, Hey, I want that and there 's accounts where where certain individuals tried to counterfeit that. The true apostles were called messengers of the church, uh, whereas you know the the, the thirteen um, the 13 original apostles were called apostles of Jesus Christ. And you can see the difference there. Um, if you're talking about the general group, Silas and Timothy, they're just called, you know, apostles of the church, messengers of the church. But when it always, when the scripture refers to the original 12 or Paul, it refers to them as being an apostle of Jesus Christ, because that's what an apostle is. Well, in both groups and in, in both groups basically the apostles were authenticated whether it's you're talking the general group like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy or the more specific 13 original apostles they were authenticated by signs and wonders and you know we're going to get into that in a list here but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 it talks about that about these guys having the ability To do what Christ did while he was here on earth. Like supernatural ability. Like they could walk into a room and say, oh, you're sick. Well, you know what? In Jesus' name, be healed. (laughs) And the person was healed. Completely. They could raise people from the dead. They could speak languages they didn't even know. These were all miraculous signs and wonders that were given to the original 12 apostles. And even to the early church some of the other disciples so that they could authenticate that they were truly from Christ. Because like I said, they had a lot of, just like we do today, we have a lot of people that believe a lot of wacky things. People are saying stuff all the time that isn't true. Well, it was the same thing back then. So how would you know if this person was truly an apostle of Jesus Christ or a disciple of Jesus Christ Well, they were able to perform miraculous signs because they needed to be established in their authority So that people didn't look at them as, oh, these are just fishermen. We don't need to listen to them. But did you see what that fisherman did? He raised that person from the dead. Or he did this or he did that. And that's the same thing Christ did. So they were authenticated in their ministry by these signs and wonders and miracles. But neither one of these groups continued in this. Um, In neither sense is the term apostle used in the book of Acts after 16, chapter 16, verse 4. It's not used. Why? Because it's not around. You see it very clearly. Nor is there any New Testament record of an apostle in either group, the general group or the more specific group, being replaced when he died. Okay? It's not like the popes. (laughs) You know, we've got to find a new pope. This guy died. No, the apostles weren't concerned about that because it was an office given to the church for a specific time for a specific reason. Um, Just like not all believers could be apostles, not all believers could be prophets. Same thing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me. Just jump ahead. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I just want to show you something here that's kind of interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has, look at what it says, appointed, appointed in the church first, here's the order, apostles, they were the first that was the first office, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healings and helping and ministrating in various kinds of tongues or languages. And then Paul asked the question, verse 29, are all apostles? See, in the Corinthian church, they were having a identity crisis. They all wanted to be an apostle. They all wanted to speak in tongues. They all wanted to have all the attention on them all the time. So Paul had to ask this question. Wait a minute. Are all, are all apostles, verse 29, are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with languages, different tongues? Do all interpret? Verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. So what is he doing? He's reminding the Corinthians of God's sovereign and perfect provision in equipping his church. It's his church. It's not our church. Sometimes I get irritated when I hear people say, yeah, you know, I want to invite you to my church. It's not your church. This isn't my church. This isn't your church. Whose church is it? It's God's church. It's Christ's church, and we need to be reminded of that. And so God has provided in his sovereign and perfect provision for the equipping of his church. It's unified, and yet it's still diverse. Remember, we're called to be, what, one body. It's one thing I, I mentioned in my prayer at the breakfast. At the end, I said, you know what, even though we all come from different Cities and towns here today as pastors of of different denominations and different churches. We have different backgrounds. We have different families. The Bible clearly instructs us, as the church of Christ, we're one church. And there's only one way of salvation. There's only one message that saves. There's only one gospel. There's only one Savior. See, we don't like to hear that. Because we like to say, "Well, I like to find my own way." No, Jesus Himself very clearly. I heard a clip of Oprah the other day on YouTube saying, "Well, you know, there's many ways to God, many religions." And for a woman who used to be so-called a woman of faith, boy, she's definitely not. <laughs> she doesn't know Jesus from the man, the moon. But she has this message of, wow, we just all need to be unified. We all need to love. Well, the body of Christ is already unified, but it's also diverse. You're not all called to be the same. How boring would that be? And by the way, there are some churches that want to pretend, play that. You know, to go to their church, you have to dress a certain way. You have to have your hair cut a certain way. You have to act a certain way. It's like a bunch of little robots. You know, we are the church... That's not what the church is. The church is a unified group of people who've been saved, individuals saved by God's grace, called to be one, yet diverse in the way they're gifted, in their personality, in their backgrounds. And that's what makes the church such an incredible thing. You look at the church and it's like, wow. You know, I mean sometimes Ken and I just we scratch our heads. Because we go, wow, we're kind of a diverse group even a small church like ours is diverse and yet we're called to be one in 1 Corinthians 12:11 Paul reminds them he says one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills So you don't get in a line after you're a Christian and say, well, let's see, this is the line for the gift of languages. That's the line for the prophecies. That's the line for the teachers. Oh, I want to be a teacher. I'm going to get in that line. That's not how it works. God gives you the gifts he wants you to have. And really, that's such a good way to go. Because, frankly, you know, we've all probably done things or been involved in ministries that at first maybe we were excited about. And we realize real quick, this is not my ministry. Okay. Why? Because God hasn't gifted us. But maybe because somebody encouraged us to try it or whatever. And we try to get in there and roll up our sleeves. And, okay, I'm going to serve the Lord. I had a guy one time in youth ministry tell me, you know what? I am, I am called to youth ministry. Okay, great. Why don't you come and just attend our youth group a couple. Wow, well, you know, I really want to teach. Well, just just come and attend for a while. And he did. And I remember the day I gave him the opportunity to just share a devotion with the kids. And, you know, I said, look, you know, 15, 20 minutes. It was a Wednesday night youth group. And this guy got up there, and he wouldn't shut up. I mean, he went for 35, 40 minutes. And he made no sense. No sense whatsoever. I, I was just... You know, and I was kind of shy, but I still am kind of, shy. and I'm thinking, okay, I don't want to embarrass this guy. You know, I'm no reason he's up there. And, but after a while I'd say, okay, you know what? We, we got to end this, you know, <laughs> oh, well, I'm not done. It's like well, You're done now. <laughs> well, I haven't finished my message. I said, well, yeah, you did. <laughs> That's it. And I had to have a hard talk with this guy afterwards. Go, you know what? This is not your calling. I'm sorry. I don't know why you feel it is. But it's not. So you gotta find something else to do. And he got upset at me, but you know what? I mean the kids thanked me. It's like, oh man, don't ever have that guy. I mean, it was crazy. It just made no sense what he was saying or what I mean, there's one thing going over a couple minutes, but I mean, you know, fifteen, twenty an hour or whatever it was, it was really bizarre. And so sometimes we get kind of involved in ministries, and after a while we realize, well, this isn't I'm not getting any pleasure out of this. Personally, I don't think I'm really grasping what I need to do in this ministry. It's not enjoyable for me. I dread it. See, you never want to be involved in a church in any ministry where you wake up in the morning and go, oh, today's Sunday. Oh, my turn to teach Sunday school. Oh man, these kids, man. But I said I would do it and I'm committed and I'm don't please come to us and say, you know what, this is not my ministry. We'll thank you for it. And we'll find you something else to do. Because we're all different. We're all gifted in different ways. And that's what makes the church the church. It doesn't mean somebody who's teaching or somebody who's doing kitchen work or somebody who's cleaning the bathrooms. We're all in the same boat. We just want to serve the Lord. And so the apostle does not give here in First in Corinthians even, chapter 12, an exhaustive list of gifts. Some people say, was well, that all the gifts? No. But he's giving a list to show the variety of the way in which the Lord calls and equips those who serve the church and how we're called to do it in a harmonious fashion. We're called together. We don't sit down and compare notes and, well, you know, she gets to work in the kitchen. You know, I really want to work in the kitchen and... No, you just do what the Lord commands you to do, what the Lord equips you to do, and that's so important. What's what's interesting in that text, we just read that word appointed, okay, Thetamai in the Greek, and it, it means basically to set in place, to set in place, and that's what God does. God sets in place those who are to minister to the church. Now, sometimes you may ask, wow, why did he set in place that person? Well, that's my point. Maybe he didn't, (laughs) right? Maybe they set themselves up. And that's one thing in ministry that you can always, even if you don't know if that's your calling or whatever, after a while, I guarantee you, the people you're ministering to, they will realize whether it's your calling or not. And they should be able to communicate that to you. You know, there's a lot of people that hear the call to ministry, but it's not the call to ministry from God. It's a call maybe from their own ego or whatever. And so you have to be aware of that. But that same word appointed is used in John fifteen sixteen, which is kind of interesting because that's where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That's the same word that he used when he appointed the apostles and the prophets. Or in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It says there, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, appointed you. It's the same word. It's just a different word in the English, but in the Greek, it's the exact same word. To care for the church of God. That word made is the word appointed. Or in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, he says, For which I was appointed, appointed a preacher, and apostle, and teacher. God has sovereignly appointed first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And then he appointed other officers such as um, evangelists and pastor, pastor-teacher, whatever you want to call it. But... Those of the apostle and those of the prophets, I think it's up there on the screen, they had basically some responsibilities, okay? Um, first of all, one of the, the first purposes, you might say, that God gave for the apostle and prophets, well, why did he give them to the church? Well, here's why. First of all, to lay a foundation for the church. There never was a church before this. So there was no foundation for the church. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 Starting in verse 19, it says this So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking to Christians, he's talking to the church at Ephesus. Verse 20, built on the foundation of who? It says, the apostles and the prophets. And the, the, the word language there means that this was something that has been accomplished. This is not an ongoing event. And then it says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 of Ephesians 2. In him you also are being built together. And the idea is you're being built together on top of the foundation. You don't continue to lay the foundation once it's laid. That wouldn't make any sense. So he says you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the church. That's the church of of Christ. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So they laid a foundation for the church. Secondly, the purpose God gave the church, apostles and prophets, was to receive and declare the revelation of God's word. That's one of the roles of a prophet. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27 and 30, 27 to 30 of Acts chapter 11, it says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. And he stood up and he foretold by the Spirit, in other words, God supernaturally spoke through this man because he was a prophet, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So God supernaturally, through this prophet, Agabus, who was in the business of being a prophet, and he received direct revelation from God. Now, today, because the canon's closed, this book is all we have, it's complete in its revelation, we don't continue to receive direct revelations from God. Now, some people believe they do, which is unfortunate because they're really causing harm to the authenticity of this book that we hold in our hands, the Bible, and we hold so dearly because what's this book so special about if I can just add whatever I want? Oh, you know, Jesus told me this morning, I'll just put this back in the book of Stephanus right there. I'll start my own book. And start receiving my own revelation. See? And you can go south real quick. So God is no longer in that business. He has given us all he's going to give us. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, if you say, well, where do you find that in Scripture? Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us how God used these prophets and these apostles to receive revelation and how the foundation was started look at verse one in hebrews one it says long ago and notice the different descriptions of how this happened at many times so first he gives a time frame long ago and at many times and in many ways there was no prescription there was no prayer okay i'm going to pray the prayer of a prophet lord please reveal to me now oh there it is i got the right words nope in many ways in many times then it says this god spoke doesn't say God is speaking. God spoke to our our fathers by the prophets. And the idea is, is that it happened for a period of time and it stopped. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. How? By his son. Once again, past tense, he's spoken. It's done. It's complete. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And it goes on and it speaks of Christ. So God has spoken through his word. We don't need to add to the Bible. God has already completed it. In Acts chapter twenty one, twenty-one, verse ten, it says, While We were staying for many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judah, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So once again, you have this prophet, Agabus, going to God's servant, saying, hey, i got a special message for you. We're seeing that on Wednesday nights. We saw that on Wednesday nights when we were in 1 Samuel. But today, we use God's word as our foundation. Well, also in Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 4, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed how to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's talking about a mystery, something that was you could not comprehend without direct revelation. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are, are fellow heirs. Remember, before the church, there was Israel, and everybody else was pagan. You had the Israelites and the Gentiles. Well, now you have the birth of the church, and Paul has to explain, hey, wait a minute. It's not going to just be Israel anymore. We have to welcome Gentiles who come to Christ into the body of Christ as well. And some of the Jewish believers had a real problem with that. You could understand why. And so Paul had to argue that point. And so he said, this mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs with Israel, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So all that happened through prophets and apostles receiving by direct revelation in the New Testament. And the third purpose that God allowed these apostles and, and prophets was to give confirmation of the Word of God. And how did they do that? I spoke of it earlier, through signs and wonders and miracles. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The signs, Paul writes, the signs of a true apostle, if you want to know whether you're, uh, you're serving a true apostle or a false apostle, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So that's 2 Corinthians twelve twelve. And then in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 8, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were being persecuted. They said, Get out of here. Well, okay, but we were, as we go, we're going to preach the word. Verse 5, Philip went down into the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Verse 6, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. See, if he didn't have the signs, they would listen to the message and go, Yeah, you're whacked. Get out of here. But he started doing miraculous signs to give credibility to his message. When they heard him and saw the signs he did, okay, they paid attention to him. Verse 7 For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had heard them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So that there was much joy in that city. So God used these signs and these wonders and these apostles and prophets to proclaim his truth. And after the apostles would proclaim the truth, they would be, their credibility would be kind of bolstered up by the signs and the works that they did. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, it says this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Listen, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, speaking of the the, the, the early apostles verse four while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts by the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will so when you get involved in the charismatic movement and they're telling you well you got to speak in tongues you know you're not saved who are they God God is the one who distributes the gifts and so you have to stop and you have to put these things into perspective and by the way the first of the gifted men in the New Testament church, were the apostles. They were the first, that's what it says, first I gave apostles. And guess who was the foremost apostle? Jesus Christ. He was the one who was sent by God. It tells us that in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle. He was a sent one and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. He was even appointed as an apostle. He was appointed as a sent one, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's uh, house. And so when you think of the apostles and you think of the prophets, this is the groundwork that God is laying in his divine plan for the church. And so when you stop and you think, okay, well, what were the, the responsibilities of the apostles. What were they to do? What were, what were some of the responsibilities that they had? Well, first of all, they were to preach the gospel. They were to preach the gospel. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 1, we see that very clearly. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize. I'm not a baptism factory. You know, sometimes you get involved in ministry and, you know, you want to be all things to all people. And so people will ask you to do things. And some of the things people ask you to do are, you know, marry, bury. You know, people die, you have a funeral. People get married, you have a wedding. And it's just my personal opinion. I would much rather, and this sounds morbid, but I would much rather bury someone than marry someone. It's just, just, to me, it's just, I don't know. It's just a lot easier to do that. You know, you got the wedding and you got all this, you know, it's a big day and all the family flying in. It's a lot of pressure. One little thing goes wrong. Oh, man, you ruined the whole. I'm convinced at a funeral, you could stand up and say whatever you want. And pretty, for the most part. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> you know, because they're, they're not attuned to what's going on. They're kind of in shock sometimes. Or, so, but. But the key is, is that, you know what, you have to stop and you have to realize, I get calls all the time. Hey, you know, me and my fiance are getting married. You know, we were wondering if the church would marry us. Would you go to our church? No. Would you go to any church? No. Why do you want to have a wedding at a church? Well, you know, my parents want us to, you know, we just think it's important. Well, obviously you don't think it's that important. You don't even go to church. See? And so you have to be willing to nicely, graciously say no. And nowadays, you know, as a a group of elders and leaders here, we've kind of made a decision, you know. I'm not going to marry anybody for the most part unless they're a member. Both people are members of our church and members in good standing. Because what does that do? That that basically isolates everybody else. So I figure if somebody's a member in good standing here at the church, then pretty much we're okay. But you know why? There are pastors that are, that are marrying factories. There are churches you can call. Hey, can we get married in your church? Sure. We'll send you a packet of information you get the packet of information oh okay there's a fee to use the auditorium wow that's a thousand dollars wow oh there's a fee to use the microphones that's another 250 dollars oh there's there's a fee for the pastor that's 1500 dollars. Oh, there's a fee for the organist what are they doing they're making money off marrying people and they'll marry anybody they don't care see and paul's saying that's not why i'm here I'm not here to marry and bury you. I am here to preach the gospel of Christ. I'm here to teach the word. That was the first and foremost responsibility of an apostle. And I believe that's the first and foremost responsibility of a pastor, of a teacher, of a Christian. To know and to be able to teach and communicate the gospel. But the early apostles, as eyewitnesses personally to Christ, they were to preach the gospel, the true, complete, authoritative gospel of Christ, substitutionary atonement by his death and the resurrection and the salvation of faith in him and him alone. Because their teaching was equivalent to Christ's teaching. That's what was so important. If they just got one thing wrong, think, the whole church would be off. You know, builders will tell you when you're laying a foundation, you better spend some money and you better get it done right. Because if your foundation is just a little bit off or you forget one of those little bolts that holds the house to the foundation or any little detail concerning the foundation, you're in for a world of hurt down the road. You go to measure for, you know, curtains. And then all of a sudden you realize, well, that, that window's crooked. Why is that window crooked? It's off by an inch and a half. Because the foundation's off. So it was very important for God and for the church when these early apostles were laying down that foundation that they taught what Christ did. And we'll cover that later. But secondly, they were also devoted to prayer and ministry of the Word. In Acts chapter 6, it shows us this. And this is kind of a model for us uh, as a church, really. I mean, they were, they were required to do this early on. Acts chapter 6, in verse 4, they were having a problem in the New Testament church. They had all these people coming, and a lot of people were widows, and they were hungry, and they needed ministered to. So the apostles were running around trying to feed everybody. They were trying to do everything themselves, and they realized this this can't happen. And so they had to come up with a way to distribute the work. So look at what it says in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, a group of them, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So a certain group wasn't given, getting as much, or maybe they missed a day or whatever, and they were getting ticked off. Verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and says, you know what, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They weren't saying that pridefully. They were just saying, look, we know what our calling is. Our calling is to the word and to prayer. Somebody else has to figure out how to feed these people. Therefore, brothers, verse 3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's how the New Testament church is to work. And I thank God that even though we're a small church, we kind of operate that way. I mean, I'm involved in a lot of stuff in a small church. You have to be almost, but it was such a blessing a couple of weeks ago. Somebody said, "Oh, we had a we had a wonderful barbecue luncheon." Really? Where'd you have that? Well, it was over at, at Danny Vasquez's house, and I'm like, "Really? What what was that about? <laughs> what well, was for? It was for the ushers." And I thought, "That's so cool." You know, I mean, it was so incredibly gracious of him kind of heads up that whole thing and it's kind of like you know what we need to get together and see i don't know ken knew, i didn't even know what was going on see that's how the church should operate you know or sometimes i walk in here sunday mornings early and there's somebody in the kitchen what are you doing in the kitchen oh we're getting the food ready oh wow you know, I don't have a menu. I don't know what they're cooking. I have the slightest idea what's going on. But you know what? They're faithful to what God has told them to do. And they're serving the body of Christ. And so they were devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. They were devoted to, as Ephesians 4 tells us, the equipping of believers to build up Christ's body that's what as elders that's what as teachers that's what as leaders within the church we're called to do now sometimes we do other things as well and that's okay you know it doesn't mean that you you know I have to lock myself in my office 12 hours a day on my knees you know with the bible as a pastor or I'm doing it wrong that's it's not saying that There are some pastors that do that. I'm I'm not one of those. I mean, I'd be bored in two seconds if I had to do that. So, you know, I I find other things to keep me entertained and and keep me busy. But it all comes under that idea of, of being involved, being served. But I know my priority as a pastor needs to be to prayer and to ministering the word. If I'm not able to do that, then what good am I? What good is my calling? Well, secondly, they were... The original, uh, the, the original, they were to preach the, the gospel. They were also to be devoted to prayer and ministry of the word. They were also to be, they were to evidence their apostleship by miracles. They were to evidence their apostleship by miracles. They equipped believers. But in the New Testament church, in Second Corinthians twelve twelve, we read this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. So they were kind of affirmed by Paul and by the church because of their innate ability to do these signs and wonders that God allowed them to do. And you say, well, do these signs and wonders happen today? Some people say yes, other people say no. That's some of the divisive things that the book of Corinthians brings out. But when you understand the purpose, why was God gifting these men with these signs and wonders? It goes right back. They were establishing a foundation. You know, they were were establishing the credibility of the church. And once that credibility was established, there was no need for them to continue to try to establish it. And so even in the New Testament, you can see the book of Acts, boy, there's a lot of stuff going on. But then slowly, as you read on through the book of Acts, it just kind of passes away. And we come to a section of Corinthians, it tells us certain things are going to cease. Tongues will cease. All right? And so you, you, you go back to the idea of, well, what about people that speak in tongues? They say they speak in tongues. It goes back, as Dr. Rob was saying Wednesday night, what is our source of truth? Are you going to allow your experience to be a source of truth? That's pretty scary. Because sometimes we can have all kinds of experiences. We can have nightmares. We can have all kinds of things. It seems so real. Yeah, but it wasn't. (laughs) Okay. And so we have to keep the word of God as our source of truth. And as we go through this book, you're going to see as we lay this foundation, hopefully by the time we get to chapter 13 and 14, it's going to make perfect sense. Why we're a church that believes in the cessation of certain signs and wonders, that they're not commonplace today. You're not putting God in a box. You're just understanding what God's purpose is. And by saying that signs and wonders have ceased, we're not saying that God does not heal. That, that, that would be just as bad because the Bible says that God can heal. Okay? He, I'm sure it's not, as, it's not done in a way that it was done in the New Testament. He doesn't give people the gift of healing. Now, some people claim they have the gift of healing, but it's funny because whenever you run into those people, I always want to take them up to Sequoia Hospital. You have the gift of healing? Let's go. Well, wait, what do you mean? No, we have to have a big crusade and a tent. No, no, that's not what they did. They went out and they healed people. And it didn't matter whether they believe in Christ or not, by the way. It wasn't based on their faith. It was based on the divine power given to those apostles, those disciples, that they had the authority to heal people. And that's exactly what they did. See, but we don't want to go there. We want to do it on TV or somewhere over in India or in Africa where it can't be validated. You know, and then they claim that they have the gift of healing. Well, if they have the gift of healing, they should be able to heal. And unfortunately, I would say all those people cannot. Well, you see here the the, the responsibilities of these Apostles, But now also, just as we close here, I don't want you to miss out on Sophanes. In the first verse there, after Apostle of Christ Jesus, he says, our brother Sophanes. Um, this was Paul's secretary. Um, they had a amanuensis. That's what the name was. It sounds a little better than, you know, he was a guy, so we'll give him the, the more... The bold name, Amenuensis. And he was a a, a guy that would help Paul. Paul would dictate to him, and he'd write these things down for Paul. And what's interesting is that the very second, or the first verse there, when he says, and our brother Sothenes. Now, if you look back at Acts chapter 18, we're going to read a little account here about Sothenes, because it's so neat to see just that little word "brother" uh, that appears there. what a profound thing has happened here. Uh, it says in verse 12, "But when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, and the Jews made an un, a united attack on Paul, So here you have the Jewish people attacking Paul, the apostle, and they brought him before the tribunal. Bound him up, brought him before him, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They were upset. Verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Calio said to the Jews, Calio said to the Jews, And if, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourself. In other words, I really don't think you got a case there, and I don't really care. Now get out of here. I refuse to be a judge over these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal. It's kind of in your face. And then it says this And they all seized who? Sothenes. Interesting. Why would they seize him? the ruler of the synagogue. So you have this crowd made up of Jews and even Gentiles. They were upset. They they didn't want to hear a message from Paul. And so they brought him before Gallio, and he said, hey, deal with it yourselves, Jews. So you had this crowd that wanted Paul's head and when it didn't work out, when their case fell apart, who did they blame? They blamed their leader, Sophanes. He was the leader of the ruler of the synagogue. So this is BC for Sophanes. This is before Christ. It's interesting, just like Paul. And look at what they did to him. They beat him in front of the tribunal. Beat him up. Galileo, he paid no attention to any of this. He didn't care. Now, you turn to 1 Corinthians, and you're like, wow, what happened? All of a sudden, this guy that's against Paul, trying to bring him to court, trying to get his head on a platter. Now, Paul's saying, our brother Sothenes. <laughs> he was what? He was transformed. He was transformed by the glorious gospel of Christ. He had been a leader of the synagogue at Corinth, probably replaced Crispus, the former leader who had become a believer. You see where this is going. Their leaders are falling. (laughs) They're falling for Christ. Oh man, okay, that guy's part of Paul's group now. Well, let's raise up another one. So they bring up Sophonies. Guess what? He becomes a believer as, as well. Some ancient manuscripts actually say that the Jews beat him and some of the other manuscripts say that the Greeks beat him, Sothenes. They both took turns. If by the Jews, it was because he was so poorly accomplished in court. They lost their court case before the situation there. But if by the Greeks, it was because, you know what, they probably resented taking up their court time. You know, that's how you resolve matters in your community. You'd go to court. Well, they bring this cruddy case. It doesn't deserve it. It's taking up all this time. Say, like, hey, you know, we got, we got other things to deal with here. So they beat him up too. I mean, they didn't care about their Jewish religion. But it indicates that sometime after this incident, he came to Christ even though he was an opponent of the gospel. See, this is what the book of Corinthians will teach us. is You know what? The, the gospel transforms people. It changes them from the outside. It changes them from the inside. It changes them in a way that we cannot transform ourselves. Verse 2 here, he tells us who he wrote to, the church of God that's in Corinth. Paul is writing here to the believers who are in Corinth but he's also writing to all the believers. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So it's not only written just for the Corinthian believers, it's written to us as well. In verse 3 here, he just gives us his. His blessing, he says, grace to you and peace. It's funny, Paul says that he always precedes the peace of God with the grace of God. You can never receive the peace of God without first understanding and receiving the grace of God. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next week we'll press on. But we're going to talk a little bit about what that means in verse uh, two, where it talks about they're called to be saints. What is our calling as believers? Well, we're called to be saints. Well, what does that mean? How does that affect how we live each and every day? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his letter to this church that was really messed up. And yet, so many times we can understand because sometimes... Our churches get messed up as well. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be true to your word as we go through this book. That we wouldn't uh, try to manipulate it to make things it doesn't say, make it say things it doesn't mean. But, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to uh, allow it to be the truth that it is and stand for itself. And, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we continue to read and reread this book, as we entertain the next set of verses and what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus called. Lord, we're so thankful for our salvation, Lord, and we pray that each person here in this place today would understand um, that, that gracious call that you've placed upon their lives to put their faith, their trust in Christ, and Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin and for salvation. And Lord... Uh, Even though you're sovereign and your word tells us that you even choose us before the foundation of the world, that you still demand a response from us. And so, Lord, you you enable us to respond to the gospel. And we pray today, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, that even now or later today in the quietness of their own home, they could cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm tired of carrying this burden of sin around myself. I want to be relieved. And Jesus says that you can bring it to him and unload your burden on him. And he will give you full forgiveness of that sin and make you a brand new person in Christ. As believers, I pray that we'd be willing to take this message outside of these four walls to the lost and dying community in which we live, this peninsula area. The Lord, it's such a dark area spiritually. And yet, Lord, you've placed this here strategically, Just like you placed that church in 1 Corinthians in a a vile place, really. There's so many people that need to hear the truth. I pray that we would do our due diligence in living and speaking the truth of the gospel and seeing people come to Christ. We ask these things. Bless our time over in the fellowship hall as well. Bless our food and just bless our fellowship. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.